Up now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sharian. And we are the hosts of Maltub now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. In this episode, we will finish off our three-episode introductory series explaining who we are and where we come from. In our first episode, we discussed where we are today in Aberdeen, Washington, with Terry Emmert stepping in to fulfill our local elite's vision of a gentrified artistic college town. Our second episode, in two parts, was an in-depth dive on how we got here, looking at previous reporting about the eviction of the river camp in 2019 and the years of fallout from that event. This episode will be a look at where we are going by examining the newest radical project from the harbor, the Black Flower Collective, LLC. We will learn about the plans this collective has for providing low-income housing, coupled with social services and community engagement. The problems of the community, housed and unhoused alike, will only begin to find resolutions through communal solutions that include the voices of the oppressed, and not through dystopian levels of policing and the harassment of our most vulnerable populations. So long as we keep pulling people out of the metaphorical river, or conversely, making sure they never make it to shore in the first place, instead of looking up the river to see why people are falling in to begin with, any and all forms of policing and punishment for the crime of being poor will only prove to exacerbate the problem. It will also generate new issues for the far right to rally around and allow them to push even more barbaric measures, an idea that has been floated around on social media by conservatives and considered by the minds of those in power. The idea essentially boils down to a concentration camp in Junction City, outside of the juvenile hall, a place where the homeless would be allowed to exist, but only if they worked, and they wouldn't be allowed anywhere else without facing criminalized punishments. What else would you call this? While you think about that, we must go out for a quick commercial break. When we return, we will be having a discussion of the Black Flower Collective LLC's plans. We will explore options of how we can begin to address the problems of the housing crisis without unilaterally punishing all of those who are forced into poverty. Up next is our monthly Radical News Roundup, but first it's time for a word from our sponsors. Are you ready for a new world? Introducing black flower permaculture. It's time to revolutionize the way we relate to our food. If you want to grow more food closer to home, reduce your carbon footprint, or just beautify your property, we are the design collective for you. Don't wait any longer to get a jump on your food security and contribute to a better world. Black Flower Permaculture is a worker-owned and operated enterprise dedicated to the creation of a world in which individuals have the autonomy, knowledge, and resources to create fulfilling lives and communities free of oppression. Our mission is to learn together the ways in which we can healthily relate to each other and to our environment. 
We are a collective of designers and consultants focusing on whole systems design and productive ecological landscapes. Our goal is to guide homeowners, developers, and private enterprises through the process of vision development, real estate search assistance, residential and commercial design, and both design and project review. Black Flower Permaculture delivers comprehensive plans which address the unique aspects of any project. We present food, energy, water, waste, and building systems in illustrated site plans which are as accessible as they are beautiful. Design allows us to participate in the creation of all sorts. When applied to culture, it is the ability to create one's own culture as you see fit. There's much to learn from the past, but we must not be subservient to it. We can change our ways as it suits us. Permaculture gives us a good path forward for attacking any problem head-on. It's direct action. It is revolutionary. By designing a permanent culture built on these ideals, we can promise a future to the next seven generations and begin to heal the wounds caused by such poorly designed systems as we have today. For this reason and more, we feel it is necessary to promote this distinct theory as a guide for those wanting to practice and learn design concepts that we can use to liberate our planet, redesign our world, and create a new world in the shell of the old. Welcome back to Molotov Now. It's time for a quick recap of the news this month. In local news, as February approaches, there is still no cold weather shelter in Aberdeen, and from the sounds of it, there won't be. In addition, the nearby city of Westport has some recent controversy around their shelter. In recent weeks, formal requests by Westport city officials echoed public pushback against the shelter, have halted plans to expand services at the company-funded cold weather shelter that has operated on West Spokane Street since November. About 10 Westport residents voiced concerns around the shelter and its public safety implications, a sentiment that mirrored comments at the January 9th council meeting. Chaplains on the Harbor has operated a cold-weather homeless shelter in its old schoolhouse building on West Spokane Street, at least in some capacity, for five years. Since November 1st, 2022, Chaplains has operated a 15-bed cold-weather shelter using funding from the county's cold-weather shelter program. In December, the chaplains requested extra funding for the county to expand the shelter's capacity. Barbara Weza, executive director for Chaplains on the Harbor, said the chaplains were forced to turn people away during the December cold snap because of capacity issues. The Board of County Commissioners approved a contract amendment with chaplains for an additional $45,000, which according to the contract would have allowed the shelter to expand by 10 beds. Those beds only would have been used should the shelter reach full capacity, Weza said which hasn't happened as often in the last few weeks. Meanwhile, Grace Harbor County Commissioners tabled the vote on a proposed site for a separate cold-weather shelter near Aberdeen on State Route 105, west of the Bishop Athletic Complex, citing a need for more specific contract language regarding shelter policies. Commissioners also prompted the shelter's contractor, Chaplains on the Harbor, to confirm logistical questions surrounding the proposed site, further delaying the opening of a service initially projected to start November 1st. The holdups at both of the shelters has resulted in what Barbara Weza called a holding pattern, with no administrative action being taken. The chaplains on the harbor initially proposed a 35-bed shelter a few blocks from the Aberdeen downtown core in October, but the location was an issue with the city. The city of Aberdeen voted to reject proposals for cold-weather shelters within the city limits. 
The board later named chaplains an apparently successful bidder for the shelter, but asked for certain contingencies to be provided with the contract, including location and policy. After a period of searching, the chaplains identified the current proposed site, which is a three-bedroom house at 267 State Route 105, owned by Terry Emmert. Wesley said the site, which is outside the city limits, received verbal approval from Mayor Pete Shave and could potentially host 20 to 25 people. Wesley said chaplains had been hiring and planning for the shelter and has lined up inspections with the fire marshal, code enforcement, legal and public works departments while waiting for the site to be approved by the county. But before they could approve the site, commissioners said contract details, behavioral policies, specifically such as a check-in, stay-in, and good neighbor policies that were included in the chaplain's initial contract, were missing from the most recent version. But because shelter projects have been delayed or altered, the county has a pocket of unallocated money that was originally expected to be used on shelters. According to a cold-weather shelter budget assessment presented to the county commissioners last month, which was presented by Grace Harbor County Public Health's Healthy Places Manager, Cassie Lentz, the county has roughly $130,500 in potentially remaining funds if all projects were fully funded. However, that was before Westport objected to shelter expansion, and Lentz confirmed the county hasn't yet committed to full amount of its grant funding. Lentz said those funds could potentially be used for something other than cold weather shelters, but those funds would have to provide homeless services and, in some form, be related to COVID-19 aid. In a move supposedly related to the upcoming renovation of the Aberdeen Library, the city of Aberdeen took steps this month to remove a carport behind the library, months before construction is likely to begin. The carport was one of the last remaining public spaces that was out of the near-constant rains here. It was frequently used by library patrons, employees, and the unhoused to stay dry. It has also been the long-term site of the weekly meals put on by the Food Not Bombs and Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network. With no other dry place to set up their meals, they have been forced to relocate under the bridge, down by the local encampment. Reports are that the move to the new location has gone well, with the residents of camp saying they appreciate it being closer, and the mutual aid volunteers being glad to have a large dry space in which to set up and hang out again. They said, Whatever the city throws our way makes us stronger as a community. Whether it's evicting people from their homes, smashing our pallets, or destroying our shelter, we always come together to help each other in times of crisis. This attempt to dissuade us from the work we do was misguided. We will serve in the rain if we have to. We aren't going anywhere. Resident of College Place, Walla Walla, Washington, Carl Robanski, former garrison educator, swim coach, and founder of a religious nonprofit Embracing Orphans, which is based in Walla Walla, but operates out of Jamaica, is facing new allegations of alleged sexual misconduct toward minor wards in the care of the Jamaican state. The incidents are alleged to have occurred within the father's house. According to Jamaican Observer, the father's house is a child protection and family servants agency CPFSA, transitional facility, which was in partnership with Carl Rubansky-led charity Embracing Orphans. A damning report from the Office of Children's Advocate outlined a litany of failures by the Child Protection and Family Services Agency to protect wards at the facility. These new allegations of alleged sexual misconduct out of the father's house in Jamaica have re- have resurfaced former local allegations of sexual misconduct involving inappropriate text messages to have been exchanged with a middle schooler in 2014 in Walla Walla. 
The 2014 allegations led to a subsequent two-year suspension of Urbanski's teaching license in 2016, preventing him from being involved in education here in the United States. His suspension from education ended about four years ago. He nevertheless remains banned from teaching in the United States. While this information has been publicly available for some time, and verified via multiple extensive investigations by the organizations themselves and the Board of Education, it appears no meaningful charges have been brought against Rabansky at this time. Rabansky continued his work with minors via this nonprofit he founded. In spite of apparent inaction by local authorities on the front at this time and the negligence of local media to cover this currently developing story, the issue of these allegations have again resurfaced through Jamaican news sources. A former ward of the state and resident of the father's house, referred to only as JC, shared their experiences with Wayne Walker, a reporter from the nationwide Radio Jamaica. Wayne Walker tells us more. The lady we're referring to as JC to protect her identity says she would not have expected that behavior from Robansky. Were you sexually abused by him? I wasn't sexually abused by him. Yes. Well, was there any sexually inappropriate contact with him? Not to me. But to others? Not that I know of, specifically. Mm-hmm. So you, this is a surprise for you? Yes, it is. Um, I'm reading the report. It is shocking. Yeah, and why is it shocking? It 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 is shocking because I wouldn't have expected that. Um, he seemed, or he seemed to be nice. Um, I thought that um, the that is the intentions were pure. So the report is shocking. JC was 19 years old when she stayed at the father's house between 2016 and 2017. She remembers being warned by staff not to be alone with Rubansky. To be careful in what way? Just to not be seen alone or not, be, not, not to find themselves alone with him. Um, and if we, if, if we were inappropriate, so for instance, if we, we weren't have, if we're in our natural state without probably like Brazier on, we're told to, to go and get dressed or to be proper because mm-hmm. they're going to be around them or not to show um, anything like cleavage or anything like that, just to be proper um, while around him. Mm-hmm. Him alone or just all the visitors? Him and probably all the visitors, yeah. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, sometimes when he's coming, yeah. The former ward of the state now questions some of Robanski's charitable acts. She notes the best-performing girl would be taken on a trip to the United States to stay in his hometown of Walla in Washington State. CPFSA CEO Rosalie Gage Gray has been asked to step aside to facilitate further investigations into the matter. The OCA's report slams the CPFSA head for misleading the education minister regarding the nature of her organization's relationship with Rabansky. She also stands accused of attempting to frustrate investigations into the matter. JC says the CPFSA lied when it suggested there were no minors at Robanski's facility. It is shocking because um, there is this consistent adamant that no wards were at the fa- no wards under eighteen were at the facility, and that wasn't true because I was na- I was nineteen twenty at the time. There were probably four, if there were 15 girls there, probably four of us were over 18. And, and we had other wards who were 
in grade 10, grade 9, they're about, and especially because they had been there before I came there. Wayne Walker, Nationwide News. Were you sexually abused by him? I wasn't sexually abused by him. Yes. Well, was there any sexually inappropriate contact with him? Not to me. But to others? Not that I know of, specifically. Mm-hmm. So you, this is a surprise for you? Yes, it is. Um, I'm reading the report. It is shocking. Yeah, and why is it shocking? It 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 is shocking because I wouldn't have expected that. Um, he seemed, or he seemed to be nice. Um, I thought that um, they that is the intentions were pure. So the report is shocking. To be careful in what way? Just to not be seen alone, or not be, not not to find themselves alone with him. Um, and if we, if if we were inappropriate, so for instance, if we, we weren't have, if we're in our natural state without probably like brazier on, we're told to to go and get dressed or to be proper because mm-hmm. we're going to be around them or not to show um, anything like cleavage or anything like that, just to be proper um, while around him. Mm-hmm. Him alone or just all the visitors? Him and probably all the visitors, yeah. But most importantly, sometimes when he's coming, yeah. It is shocking because um, there is this consistent adamant that no words were at the no words under 18 were at the facility, and that wasn't true because I was was 19, 20 at the time. There were probably... Four, if there were 15 girls there, probably four of us were over 18, and, and we had other wards who were in grade 10, grade 9, there about, and especially because they had been there before I came there. The text of the OCA investigation is linked in the show notes. It should be noted that Embracing Orphans' social media presence has since been expunged in the light of these new allegations coming out of Jamaica. Rubansky has also deleted his own social media profiles. For more details regarding the new allegations from minors out of Jamaica, follow the YouTube link to news reports on the allegations in the show notes. Please be advised, the video contains graphic descriptions of the abuse in question. In Episode 2, Part 1, we mentioned we would be doing a follow-up with Katie Hussey, a resident of Dayton, Washington, who has been the target of an illegal harassment campaign by the police that has costed her both her job and housing. Due to the severity of the situation, we were not able to reach out for comment at this time. To support Katie in this hard time, please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to either help prevent their eviction or support them should things turn worse. Thank you. In Tacoma, Washington, a Tenants' Rights Action Conference was called for on Saturday, February 11th from 12 o'clock noon to 4.30 p.m. at Common Good 621 Tacoma Avenue in Tacoma, Washington. In a statement released by the organizers, we are asking community leaders and organizations to endorse the Tenants' Rights Action Conference by emailing TacomaForAll at gmail.com. That's Tacoma, the number four, all, at gmail.com. Over a dozen labor and community organizations have already endorsed. For personal endorsements, please list your name and any relevant roles, titles, or affiliations. If needed, we'll make clear you are endorsing in your personal capacity only. 
We hope to announce an initial list of endorsers by mid-January. Tacoma urgently needs a comprehensive tenant bill of rights. Landlords in Tacoma and Pierce County evict tenants at a 56% higher rate than the rest of the state, with 90% of evictions due to inability to pay rent. A majority of Tacoma tenants are rent burdened, paying more than a third of their income on housing. Studies show exceeding this threshold leads to spikes in rates of homelessness. With housing costs rising far faster than wages, rates of displacement continue to grow. Tacoma has an acute housing shortage, estimated at 20,000 homes and growing, giving landlords even more leverage to hike rents up higher, evict tenants, and ignore code violations. Landlord profiteering hit communities of color hardest everywhere, but the racial disparities in Tacoma are especially acute. Rates of home ownership for black families are 27% lower in Tacoma than the national average. Evictions and rent hikes destabilize our communities and schools, increasing inequities. Three out of four renters who move do so following rent hikes. Students forced to move to schools after 8th grade are twice as likely to drop out. Robust tenant protections and rent stabilization are proven to reduce inequalities and increase stability, improving outcomes in education, health, employment, and incarceration rates. Yet tenant protections in Tacoma remain extremely limited, even as a wave of tenant rights laws were passed in cities across our state and nationally. It is past time that Tacomans get the same legal protections enjoyed by hundreds of thousands of renters across Washington. That's why we are organizing the Tenants' Rights Action Conference. We aim to bring a broad grassroots coalition together to discuss and democratically decide on a strategy to win a robust package of tenant protections. Home in Tacoma for All is preparing for both a possible tenants' rights ballot initiative in 2023, as well as opportunities to push our city council to pass tenant protections. Whatever strategy we choose, we know that we will need a broad coalition to win against landlord and business opposition. When we launched Home in Tacoma for All last April, we brought together over 120 community leaders, housing justice activists, labor organizers, and those most impacted by housing and justice for a powerful multiracial rally. In the lead-up to the Action Conference, we aim to grow that coalition further and to emerge with an agreed strategy to organize thousands of Tacomans to take action. Endorsing the Tenants' Rights Action Conference does not mean you or your organization will automatically endorse the strategy decided at the conference, whether that is a ballot initiative or a pressure campaign on city council. Rather, you are endorsing the urgent need for a serious community dialogue on expanding tenants' rights in Tacoma. We thank you for your support. To see the full document, check the link in the show notes. In other news... The cousin of Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Coulors died after being tasered by a police officer in Los Angeles following a traffic incident. Keenan Darnell Anderson, aged 31, died at a hospital in Santa Monica, California after suffering a cardiac arrest following the January 3rd incident. Authorities say that an officer was flagged down after a crash took place, and the officer stated that Anderson was acting erratically and running in the middle of the street. The body cam footage of the incident shows Anderson telling the officer, Please help me, before he takes off running. Anderson was eventually pinned down on the floor by an officer and shouted, quote, They're trying to George Floyd me, in reference to the black man killed by police officers during a May 2020 incident in Minnesota. As a struggle developed between officers and Anderson, one officer deployed his taser weapon. Anderson was then handcuffed and taken to the hospital, where he died. Memphis City officials on the evening of January 27th released more than an hour of footage showing the deadly confrontation between Tyree Nichols and Memphis police officers earlier this month. The released materials included three body camera videos and one overhead surveillance video. 
The five officers involved in the arrests were fired after an internal investigation and are facing criminal charges, including second-degree murder. Following the release of the video on the night of January 27th, two deputies with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office have been put on leave pending an investigation. Following mass protests in Memphis, where peaceful protesters shut down the I-55 bridge, as well as New York City, where three other protesters were arrested, and Washington, D.C., According to the footage, the incident starts to unfold around 8.24 p.m. Central Time when officers initially stop Nicholas for supposed reckless driving that the Memphis Police Department has not been able to substantiate until 9.02 p.m. Central Time. When an ambulance finally appears on camera to take Nichols to the hospital nearly 20 minutes after officers casually chatted about above a beaten and bloody Tyree Nichols. The following is a reading of a written description from a Twitter thread from Stepdad Elrad for those who want to know what happened but can't bring themselves to watch the traumatizing video. Screenshots and a link will also be in the show notes as well. Content warning for graphic descriptions of police lynching in Memphis, Tennessee. If you would like to skip this content, you could pick up the news story by skipping ahead four minutes. The Twitter thread reads as follows. The following is a description of the Tyree Nichols murder. I'm writing as I watch. It will be brutal and disturbing. This thread is for people who would like to know what's happened, but do not want to watch the video. From the beginning of the traffic stop, police are coming in hot. They curse at him, yell instructions. There's very little time for Tyree Nichols to comply. He communicates with the officers clearly and politely and acquiesces. I'm on the ground, he says calmly. You guys are really doing a lot right now, Tyree says in shock, still following orders. I'll break your shit, another officer says. At this point, tasers come out. The body cam gets very shaky. Tyree runs as he's much faster than the cops. He outruns them easily. Cops radio in what Tyree looks like and which direction he went. One of the prongs of the taser hit the bastard, the officer says, annoyed. The police huff and puff, clearly running for Tyree, was hard work. Cop 1 helps Cop 2 flush his eyes because he maced him, lol. You got me good, he winces. Beating people for no reason is so hard. Cop 1 continues to pant like he just ran a marathon. Another police car checks in and speeds in the direction Tyree Nichols ran. Then another. We have a lot of cops coming for a supposed reckless driver. I say supposed because even their police department can't back up why they even pulled Tyree over. Cop 2 finally stops bemoaning his macing from Cop 1 and leaves the scene to pursue Tyree. The second video begins and it's supposed to be the most violent and disturbing video. I'm going to content warning the rest of the thread again. Police murder, brutality, violence, blood, and gore. The second video begins with police closing in on Tyree Nichols, who has outrun them until this point. Five cops are at the scene at this point. They start macing everywhere, dousing themselves in the process. The cop filming is sprayed to hell, and he walks away. We can't see. Cop three bitches and complains about the mace he soaked Tyree in. When he recovers, he rages and screams, I'm gonna baton the fuck out of you. He beats Tyree with the telescope baton, then walks away and struggles to slap it back in. Not exactly a rocket scientist. On to video three. The view is from an officer that was on top of Tyree. The view becomes largely obscured by Mace. We can really appreciate how much they used. Tyree writhes in pain and screams for his mom. We hear them continue to scream, Give me your hands. But in the other camera view, we saw Tyree totally helpless on the ground. His hands were completely available, no threat. There was never a weapon, of course. Tyree moans in pain. Get him up, someone commands. Cop 3 insists. He's on something. He's cutting through traffic. The fourth and final video is a mounted security camera on a pole, so we see everything from a bird's eye view. 
all to Tyree's head and face. Five punches, four football kicks, three baton strikes. They hold him down and his feet kick. He's suffocating. An officer holds his feet down. Tyree's body is left on the pavement and the police begin tending to their own affairs. They flush their eyes, put away their gear. One of the cops kicked Tyree so hard he's got a limp. Much like the murder of Robert Delgado last year in Lentz, they stand around and shoot the shit. CNN is appalled the police are just standing around and doing nothing, and no one said anything. Yes, CNN. This is why we say ACAB. Police prop Tyree against one of the cruisers, and he keeps slumping over. They roughly yank him up, and down he goes again. He's in and out of consciousness. Tyree is currently on the ground twitching. Memphis PD doesn't look twice. There are no EMTs. They just chat. It feels like eons. We just watch Tyree suffer and his brain fill with blood. He doesn't get medical attention for about 30 minutes, according to CNN. EMS was there. They just didn't do anything. I wonder if any of those EMTs will be charged. So negligent. That's the end. This is how Tyree Nichols was murdered by Memphis PD. Lynched, really. It's cruelty. It's about power. It's about mob mentality. It's shit that happens every day. Burn it to the ground. We cannot let this event become just another victim of the state and fade into obscurity, leaving only the family, friends, and their four-year-old son to carry the burden of the brutality of state violence. So long as we continue to live in a society based on hierarchical domination, then these extrajudicial murders will not stop and continue to get more frequent and more brutal as time goes on. 2022 already was revealed a horrifying peak in record numbers of actually reported police brutality, with the evidence to show that those numbers will continue to rise. They want this story to fade from public memory and are preparing to shut down dissent should protests go outside the control channels set by the state. Before they could even release the video, the Department of Homeland Security said in a statement on the 27th before the video was released that it is coordinating with partners across the United States ahead of the expected release of the video and the death of Tyree Nichols later that day. The agency will continue working with our partners across every level of government and impacted communities to share timely information and to support efforts to keep our communities safe, it said. Police departments in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Nashville, Milwaukee, Seattle, Denver, Dallas, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Indianapolis, and Atlanta told CNN they are either monitoring the events in Memphis closely or already have plans in place in case of large-scale protests or unrest. The state is ready and able to mobilize law enforcement from a wide area and even call on the help of the feds to crush any rebellion not strong enough to withstand it. We need spaces in which to learn how we might curtail and resist these efforts. We need to gather to consider and reflect and ruminate on our goals and our needs and our strategy in order to achieve them. The police can repress one uprising, even if it's large. What they are not prepared for is many small uprisings all over the place. It is no longer enough to travel to major urban centers for mass demonstrations. We need to be taking the lessons learned and applying it back home in our small towns and outlying cities. Radicals everywhere should aim to inspire these sorts of actions where they are. We need to be ready for the next wave of mass uprising and be able to transform people's righteous rage into productive forces for overturning the tables on our rulers and securing a good living for everyone. If you are a content creator, if you host content on any kind of platform, this is going to be one of those things we have to commit our platforms to because of how much the police are trying to control the narrative and unrest. The order of the day is going to be to keep the status quo intact and to get the public to move on as quickly as possible. 
We cannot contribute to that initiative. We have to start calling for, encouraging, and boosting signals for local protests. Remember not to share the video directly. Certainly nothing that will autoplay, but we need to shift our content to focus on police brutality again, particularly Tyree Nichols. Tyree Nichols, another life cut way too short at the age of 29 at the hands of the state. He had just started a job at FedEx, working alongside his stepfather, Rodney Wells. He was very, very beloved at my job. Everybody's calling me with blessings, prayers, and showing sympathy for what happened, Rodney Wells said. He only worked at FedEx for maybe nine months, but you should see the outpouring of love and support, Rovon Wells said. The Wellses said that Nichols was passionate about skateboarding and photography, hobbies he engaged in during his downtime on weekends. Photography helps me look at the world in a more creative way, Nichols stated on his photography page. It expresses me in ways I cannot write down for people. It's just so hard to even fathom all of this because it's not real to me right now. I don't know anything right now, Rovon Wells said. All I know is my son Tyree is not here with me anymore, she added. I know everybody says they have a good son or that everybody's son is good, but my son, he actually was a good boy, she said. Amid the investigation, Rovon Wells said she just wants people to remember that her son was a beautiful soul. We will get justice for Tyree, if that's the last breath I take, she said. We must make sure that they get justice and dismantle this oppressive capital system. All power to the people. Abolish the police. This marks yet another casualty of the white supremacist state. A new data analysis by Mapping Police Violence reveals that at least 1,176 people, or about 100 people a month last year alone, were killed by U.S. law enforcement making it the deadliest for police violence since 2013 when experts first started tracking the killings nationwide. The preliminary 2022 total, a possible undercount as more cases are cataloged, marks 31 additional fatalities than the year before. In 2021, police killed 1,145 people, 1,152 people in 2020, 1,097 in 2019, 1,140 in 2018, and 1,089 in 2017. The earliest data goes back to 2013, when journalists and racial justice advocates began counting these fatal incidents on a national basis. A database run by the Washington Post, which tracks fatal shootings by police, also shows 2022 as a year with record killings. Police and correctional officers were also involved in the horrifying death of Larry Eugene Price Jr. after arresting him for a mental health issues and allowing him to starve to death while in custody awaiting trial, according to information pulled from a report made by Newsweek. On August 19, 2020, Larry Eugene Price Jr. wandered into the Fort Smith, Arkansas police station, as he did almost daily. This homeless man was a regular and harmless part of the officer's day, but this time, Price, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and PTSD, used his finger like a gun to point around the station and at officers, threatening and cursing at those present. Officers proceeded to arrest him on a state felony, terroristic threatening in the first degree. He had no real weapon, yet he was handcuffed and taken to the Sebastian County Detention Center. He went before a judge who set bond at $1,000. It was simple. He would have been free with $100 for bail, but he was destitute. From then, everything else that could have gone wrong for Price did. His mind lost, his health gone, and seemingly no one paying attention to his well-being, Price was dead a year later at 51. He was found in a solitary confinement cell with his eyes wide open, naked, starved, dried saliva in the corners of his mouth. 
in a pool of standing water so large his feet had shriveled. He had long since had his medication taken away. Toward the end, he had resorted to eating his own feces and drinking his own urine in an attempt to survive. The official cause of death for Price was malnutrition and dehydration, and the manner was listed in the autopsy report as, quote, natural. The prosecuting attorney wrote to the Arkansas State Police on January 5th, 2022, that there was no basis to prosecute anyone or any entity in the case. Only in response to Newsweek publishing this story did Sebastian County Sheriff Hobe Runyon write to say that an internal probe of Price's death was underway. The 365-bed Sebastian County Detention Center, originally built in 1994 for 260 and described in the suit as knowingly engaging in unconstitutional practices and customs, profound training deficiencies, grossly inadequate staffing, overcrowding, and a reckless lack of supervision, had had problems before. From 2009 to 2019, for example, Arkansas prison inspectors doing state compliance checks found Quote, in one inspection after another, the jail to be overpopulated with inmates, insufficiently staffed, and in need of additional space, despite an expansion in 2007, according to the lawsuit. The same worries were found in audits done in 2020 and 2021, the year Price died. The result, according to the filing, was that the jail was unable to handle inmate emergencies, as well as the mental illness cases such as Price, who had his antipsychotic and mental stabilizing medications, namely Abilify, according to medical records, taken away without explanation months before he died. Newsweek found there had also been prior deaths in the facility, including the 2017 death of an autistic inmate and of Lewis Shores, a teen who had been accused of using a hammer to kill an elderly couple and fatally stabbing his mother. He died after suffocating in a plastic bag. The sheriff's office, which runs the jail, did not comment on the historic allegations. Friends and families, friends and family were neither allowed to visit or told of his $100 bond, an amount they would have easily paid to free their loved one. Specifically, the suit claims Price died not only because of their deliberate indifference and neglect, but also because of systemic deficiencies in the Sebastian County Jail's policies and practices, which put severely mentally ill people at significant risk of serious harm or death. Turnkey Health Clinics is named in the suit because it failed, according to the lawsuit, to train and supervise staff on how to properly monitor and document the condition of mentally ill patients in segregation, when to elevate them to a higher level of care when their condition is not improving, how to respond when they are not ingesting sufficient fluids or nutrition, and how to effectively address the needs of patients who express refusal to take certain medications or otherwise participate in treatment. The filing goes on to say, the company, a regional provider of health care to places of incarceration, knew of the Sebastian County Jail's failures and knew that they subjected patients with serious mental health illnesses to a substantial risk of suffering serious harm, but it did not correct the failures. These failures resulted in Mr. Price's suffering and death. The suit over Mr. Price's death states that turnkey psychiatrist Lewis failed in his legal obligation through a lack of care and attention to the inmate's withering condition. Both doctors and nurses noted his, at times, psychotic behavior and yet cut off his meds anyway, then refused to see him again. Hyped, the family's lawyer, also criticizes how jail officials monitored Pierce. Hyped, through a public records request, obtained printouts of the logs for well-being checks. Between August 1st and August 29th, 2021, according to the suit's allegations, jail guards logged over 4,000 consecutive well-being checks of Mr. Price, 
and each time they made the exact same entry, inmate and cell okay. In the last 48 hours of Mr. Price's confinement alone, they made this entry more than 300 successive times. They continued to log these same words, at least four times an hour, even in the hours and minutes leading up to his death, when Mr. Price was visibly malnourished, dying of starvation and dehydration. They even made these same logs after his death. The Supreme Court on January 3rd indicated it would rule in favor of a concrete company in Washington state, seeking to revive a lawsuit it filed against the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, alleging that a strike damaged its product. The legal question is whether the company, Glacier Northwest Incorporated, can sue the union for damages in in-state court over an August 2017 strike action when drivers walked off the job leaving wet concrete in their trucks. It centers on an incident in which members of Teamsters Local 174 went on strike after negotiations broke down over a new collective bargaining agreement. Glacier says it lost $100,000 as a result of failing to fulfill a contract on the day of the strike and also claims additional damages. The company says it was able to do the previously scheduled work the following week. The Washington Supreme Court ruled for the union in December 2021, saying that any concrete loss was incidental to a strike arguably protected by federal law. Based on questions of the justices during the oral argument, it appears the court will say that the Washington Supreme Court was wrong to dismiss the lawsuit. It could, however, be a narrow ruling adopting the middle ground position taken by the Biden administration. San Diego Trades Council v. Gammon in 1959 lays out the process that employers must use if they believe their workers time to strike so recklessly that the union should be held liable. In nearly all cases, the employer must first obtain a ruling from the NLRB establishing that the workers' strike was not protected by federal law. Only then may they file a lawsuit against the union. This is a tremendous blow to workers. One important reason the Garmin process exists is that it shields unions from lawsuits that could drain their finances and discourage workers from exercising their right to strike. After all, that right means very little if well-money employers can bombard unions with lawsuits the union cannot afford to litigate. If the Supreme Court decides to rule in favor of Glacier in this case, then we will begin to see even worse conditions for the working class. Even positions of privilege are not guaranteed so long as those above them are free to carry on with their exploitation. For example, Google's parent company Alphabet Inc. has laid off 12,000 employees from across teams. The staff was informed about the mass job cut by the CEO of the tech giant Sundar Pichai in a memo. Those affected included a software engineer named Justin Moore, who worked at Google for over 16 and a half years and was sacked after his account was deactivated at 3 a.m. Mr. Moore, in a LinkedIn post, wrote, So after 16 and a half years at Google, I appear to have been let go via an automated account deactivation at 3 a.m. this morning as one of the lucky 12,000. I don't have any other information, as I haven't received any of the other communications, that the boilerplate You Have Been Let Go website, which I also cannot now access, said I should receive. The employee added that his time at Google was, quote, largely wonderful, and that he was proud of the work that he and his teams did. This also just drives home that your work is not your life, and your employers, especially big, faceless ones like Google, see you as 100% disposable. Workers at the Twitter Singapore office were told to empty out their desks and vacate the premises via email. They were told that they had until 5 p.m. to leave the Capitol Green building and resume their duties remotely. Musk's cost-cutting efforts have included not paying rent on his global headquarters, and it was sued over that issue last month by the landlord of its San Francisco offices. Casey Newton of Platformer first tweeted about the Singapore office clearout, adding that the reason for it 
was failure to pay rent on the facility. This adds yet another hilarious chapter in Musk's takeover of the company and the resulting downfall of Twitter and his subsequent companies. As Tesla CEO Elon Musk is currently facing a securities fraud trial over tweets he made in 2018 about taking the company private at $420 per share and having secured funding for the bid. Shareholders who traded Tesla stock following the tweets are suing Musk for billions of dollars in damages, claiming that his tweets led to them losing millions and millions of dollars. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed an executive order last week barring the use of the term Latinx in official state documents, saying the government should use ethnically appropriate language. The government has a responsibility to respect its citizens and use ethnically appropriate language, particularly when referring to ethnic minorities, the executive order read. In her order, Sanders said her administration's policy is to prohibit the use of culturally insensitive words for official state government business and directed all state agencies to review their official documents and submit a report to the governor detailing their use of the terms Latinx and Latinxes. Anti-drag bills have proliferated in 2023. States like Arizona and Montana and several other states have seen bills proposed to ban drag being seen by minors or drag in public. In one state, Nebraska, would even say that people who are under 21 years old cannot see drag. Arizona's bill says that drag events cannot happen before noon on Sundays. All of the bills include language on how they define drag that leaves people wondering if these laws will also target the transgender community. A new bill being proposed in West Virginia, however, goes a step further. It outright bans any, quote, transvestite or transgender exposure, performance, or display if minors are present. There have been increasing escalations in anti-drag bills recently. Nebraska's bill states that a performance is banned if the main aspect of the performance is a performer which exhibits a gender identity that is different from the performer's gender assigned at birth using clothing, makeup, or other physical markers. Transgender people could easily be read into that law and thus banned from doing any sort of public performance. These bills also make no distinction between a live or a recorded performance leaving some to wonder if movies like Mrs. Doubtfire would be banned or several Shakespearean plays that utilize drag. What about transgender comedians, transgender musicians, and plays in which transgender people are cast? Needless to say, things are scary and uncertain in the states in which drag laws are being proposed. Four senators in West Virginia just decided to clear up any uncertainty. Yes. They absolutely do intend to include bans on transgender people being in front of minors and anti-drag bans. West Virginia Senate Bill 252 explicitly targets the trans community in a bill that defines any, quote, transvestite or transgender exposure to minors as obscene manner. See these lines from the bill. Line 63 through 66. For the purposes of any prohibition, protection, or requirement under any and all articles and sections of the Code of West Virginia protecting children from exposure to indecent displays of a sexually explicit nature, such prohibited displays shall include, but not be limited to, any transvestite and or transgender exposure, performances, or display to any minor. This bill modifies the 618A1 definitions of obscene matter to minors, and directly includes, quote, transvestite or transgender exposure, performance, or display as obscene matter. Section 618A2 then defines the penalties for exposing minors to obscene matter, which includes transgender exposure included in this new bill, quote, 
Any adult with knowledge of the character of the matter who knowingly and intentionally distributes, offers to distribute, or displays to a minor in any obscene matter is guilty of a felony and, upon conviction thereof, shall be fined not more than $25,000 or confined in a state correctional facility for not more than five years or both. What does this mean for transgender teachers? Transgender parents. Earlier in the same bill, they ban obscene matter within 2,500 feet of any school. This would in fact treat all transgender people like sex offenders when it comes to public schools. Are teachers going to be fired because they are giving minors transgender exposure? Are plays with transgender people in them going to be canceled? Are parents who are simply walking their children going to be targeted? It's disconcerting to see weekend news of drag queen events being stormed by far-right militant organizations like the Proud Boys, and then to see these laws proliferate afterwards. Republicans sometimes try to distance themselves from these white nationalist groups, but it is clear that they are major figures in the Republican Party who intend to steer the party and any states they control into an oppressive new era of anti-queer enforcement. The intimidation tactics being used in an extra-legal fashion are resulting in Republican politicians not condemning but supporting these very goals. Some might argue that these bills have no chance of passing, or that they will be struck down as unconstitutional. I want to emphasize that this isn't just a single Republican proposing it. Several bills like it have been proposed all over the country. While this is the most extreme version of these bills, four senators have sponsored it. Senator Michael Azinger, Senator Bill Hamilton, Senator David Stover, and Senator Vince Deeds. It feels like we are approaching new territory every day we see new anti-trans legislation. Criminal bans on gender-affirming care are being proposed in many states that would ban care up to, in some cases, the age of 26. Now we are seeing attempted bans on gender nonconformity and bans on simply being trans in public. Are we going to return to the days of the three-article rules? which resulted in people getting arrested for impersonating men and women in public. Stonewall was a fight in part as a result of these kinds of laws being imposed on the gay, trans, and drag communities. It is unthinkable to think that we could return to those days yet again. I hope that we never do. North Dakota has been the site of many anti-trans bills in 2023. Already, it has seen multiple bills proposed that would do things like ban transgender people from sports, ban transgender birth certificate updates, and medically detransition trans youth. One of these bills, the Bill to Ban Trans Birth Certificate Updates, even received a due pass from its committee hearing. North Dakota's Senate Bill 2199 would mandate that all employers in the state who receive state funding, as well as all schools, institutions, state agencies, and offices, misgender transgender people at large, not just students, but all transgender people. The bill mandates that the words used to reference an individual's sex, gender, gender identity, or gender expression mean the individual's determined sex at birth, male or female. It also mandates that this to be determined through the individual's DNA. Those who violate this will be charged a $1,500 fee by the state. The text of the bill is available linked in the show notes. In Santee, California, as reported by Unicorn Riot, for the second time in four days, the Cameron Family YMCA in suburban San Diego County closed its doors ahead of a rally by violent anti-LGBTQ bigots targeting the facility for its transgender-inclusive policy. Local far-right organizer and QAnon supporter Mike Forzano called for the Saturday rally in a January 17th Facebook Live video broadcasted from his car in which he explained that the event would also be in honor of his own birthday. Forzano is one of several 
South California anti-LGBTQ activists looking to capitalize on panic sparked by recent false claims by a 17-year-old that a trans woman's presence in a YMCA shower area meant she had been exposed to a naked male and therefore assaulted. In addition to Proud Boys chapters and the right-wing Latino group Lexit, those welcome under Forzano's banner included members of the violent white supremacist group American Guard, including one more supporting a swastika tattoo on his right arm. During Forzano's event, a small group of women counter-protesting for trans rights were accosted by men wearing knives and pepper spray canisters. One anti-trans rally attendee said he wanted to, quote, string them up and fucking hang them. One masked anti-trans protester believed to be an unattended child repeatedly aimed an air rifle or possibly a paintball gun towards reporters filming the event. Lexa activist Sylvia Arajo was seen on video briefly assaulting photojournalist Kelly Stewart while she was documenting that the far-right activists had covered over their vehicle's license plates with tape. Local media reported that Samuel Duth, a pastor of the ardently right-wing Awakened Church in San Diego, spoke at Saturday's event. In March 2022, the church hosted the Reawaken America tour with Eric Trump, Roger Stone, and former General Michael Flynn in a ceremony laden with QAnon imagery that aimed at sanctifying the far-right January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Unicorn Riot also reported on Flynn's organizing, which led to the Capitol attack. More mainstream religious leaders said that the tour promoted a Christian nationalist ideology that weds discrimination and militarism with a warped view of the Christian faith. The rally lasted about two hours, with roughly 150 in attendance. No arrests or injuries were reported. San Diego Sheriff's Department deputies from the Santee Sheriff's Station observed the event from the YMCA parking lot and did not intervene in any altercations. A previous rally on January 18th targeted the same YMCA just four days earlier and forced it to close as local Republican school board and city council gave anti-LGBTQ speeches to a crowd of approximately 500 people. Proud Boys, members of the American Guard, and others also engaged in some brief violence against counter-protesters and reporting media on the fringes of the event. Republican officials promoted an apparent hoax falsely painting transgender people as violent predators. Among their supporters were clearly identifiable Proud Boys and at least one man with Nazi imagery tattooed on his head. A 17-year-old recently claimed she was exposed to a nude male in the Cameron family YMCA shower, even though that the trans woman she was targeting had previously undergone gender reassignment surgery. The teenager's misleading account sparked a transphobic moral panic claiming that the gym's trans-inclusive policies, in compliance with state law, were causing helpless underage girls to be assaulted by naked men. The Cameron family YMCA in Santee has had to repeatedly close due to threats from the escalating anti-LGBTQ campaigns seeking to deny trans people the access to public facilities, guaranteed to them by California law. About 500 anti-trans rally goers gathered in front of the local YMCA while about two to 300 people attended a nearby counter-protest and dance party organized by the San Diego chapter of the Party for Socialism and Liberation and other local anti-fascist collectives. Members of the violent racist groups such as the Proud Boys and American Guard swung fists and makeshift weapons at counter-protesters as speeches degrading LGBTQ people as deviant and criminal were given by the Santee City Councilwoman, Laura Caval, El Cajon City Councilman, Phil Ortiz, and Cajon Valley School Board member, Anthony Carnavale. Former California State Assemblyman Steve Baldwin and Foothills Christian Church Pastor Mike Van Meter 
also delivered supportive comments to the pro-bigotry event. So did Andrew Hayes, who serves as both the president of the Lakeside Union School District and as the district director for the California State Senate Minority Leader Brian Jones. San Diego Sheriff's Department deputies were present with riot gear and crowd control munitions, but did not intervene in the assaults. No arrests or injuries were reported. On January 5, 2023, the Idaho Supreme Court upheld Idaho's near-total abortion ban, its six-week abortion ban, and its related civil liability law, Planned Parenthood v. State of Idaho. But they also offered some clarifications on law that aren't likely to do anything other than further confusion and suffering. For example, Idaho's ban requires that doctors who legally terminate pregnancies in the limited exceptions that the state allows to do so, in a way that, quote, provides the best opportunity for the unborn child to survive. The court writes that doctors performing abortions must remove the unborn child in a manner that provides the best opportunity for survival, for example, vaginal delivery or cesarean delivery, as opposed to a procedure like a DNC, even if the doctor understands that the fetus will not be viable, unless doing so would pose a, quote, greater risk of the death of the pregnant woman. This law serves as a deterrent to people seeking abortions through the knowledge that they might be subjected to a C-section even though their fetus is not viable. Also in Idaho, Senator Scott Herndon unsuccessfully tried to remove rape and incest abortion exemptions from state law. In four pieces of proposed legislation, he sought to change the state law's remove requirements for public works contractors to provide bathrooms that align with gender identity, and strengthen the state's stand-your-ground laws. The one proposal of his that the Senate State Affairs Committee members did not vote to introduce would have removed rape and incest exemptions from Idaho's abortion bans. The committee voted to return the proposal to the senator rather than introducing it as a bill, with only Senator Ben Toes, a Republican from Coeur d'Alene, voting against it. Senator Treg Burnt, a Republican from Meridian, told the Idaho press that he felt that the proposed legislation went too far. Those exemptions are important and need to be respected under the law, Burnt said. Senators Chuck Winder, a Republican for Boise, Kelly Anthon, a Republican for Burley, and Abby Lee, a Republican from Fruitland, were all absent. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is asking state universities for the numbers and ages of their students who saw or received gender dysphoria treatment, including sex reassignment surgery and hormone prescriptions, according to a survey released this month. Why he's conducting the survey wasn't completely clear. LGBTQ advocates have criticized DeSantis for policies seen as discriminatory, including his infamous Don't Say Gay bill banning instruction on sexual and gender identity in early grades and making it easier for parents to remove books related to the topic in public schools. We can see cuts in funding for universities to treat students with this condition, and I think an all-out elimination of services is certainly on the table, House Democratic leader Fentrice Driscoll said. This survey is similar to one DeSantis is forcing state universities to complete regarding spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion and critical race theory programs. The current memo asks universities to provide the number of encounters for sex reassignment treatment or where such treatment was sought, as well as data for students referred to other facilities. It says to protect students' identities in in completing the information. The survey requires breakdowns by age, regardless of whether a student is 18 or older, and of people prescribed hormones or hormone antagonists, or who underwent medical procedures like mastectomies, 
breast augmentation or removal and reconstruction of genitals. In Kenora, Ontario, Canada, searches for unmarked graves at the site of a former northern Ontario residential school have uncovered 171 plausible burials, the Wazushka Nigam Nation said Tuesday, with other sites still to be investigated. Most of them were unmarked, except for five with grave markers, the First Nation said in a news release. In the release, Chief Chris Skeed said, Both Canada and Ontario have continued to express their commitment to reconciliation, to the truth, and to the healing of our communities. Finding the truth and exercising caution on everything touching by this genocidal legacy comes at a price, and it's a price our treaty partners need to be prepared to pay. That is true reconciliation. The truth and reconciliation approach is a form of restorative justice which differs from the customary adversarial or retributive justice. Retributive justice aims to find fault and punish the guilty. On the other hand, restorative justice aims to heal the relationships between offenders, victims, and the community in which an offense takes place. According to records provided by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, at least 36 children died at the St. Mary's Residential School in Kenora, Ontario. The First Nation said, based on conversations with survivors and their testimonies, the true number is believed to be significantly higher, it said. Between 1897 and 1972, more than 6,000 indigenous children attended the Catholic-run institution in Kenora. The plausible burials were found during studies conducted by the First Nation's technical, archaeological, and ground-penetrating radar team, and informed by testimony from survivors. The studies were first launched in May as part of a multi-year project intended to locate unmarked graves. The Wajushka Nigam Nation is now seeking resources to get greater certainty on the number of plausible graves in the cemetery grounds linked to the former schools and to conduct investigations into the sites near it. Additional sites, which are not covered by the current search and include land now privately owned, have been identified by survivor testimony, archaeological assessment, and archival investigations. Ontario Indigenous Affairs Minister Greg Rickford said he communicated his full support to Skeed upon hearing of the discovery. As we continue to uncover the truth of our collective past on the journey towards reconciliation, we will continue to support these investigations and will support healing for survivors, their families, and community members suffering from mental health and addictions due to intergenerational trauma and harms inflicted by the Indian residential school system, he said in a statement. More than 150,000 indigenous children were forcibly separated from their families and communities and sent to church-run residential schools beginning in the 19th century. A central element of the state-backed policy that amounted to cultural genocide, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The idea for the schools came in part from the United States. In 1879, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School opened in Pennsylvania, the motto of the school being, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. A motion calling on the federal government to recognize residential schools as genocide passed the House of Commons with unanimous consent in October. The 2021 findings of possible unmarked graves at a former Kamloops, British Columbia residential school set off a number of other investigations. Star Blanket Cree Nation in Saskatchewan said ground-penetrating radar had turned up 2,000 areas of interest and a child's bone had been separately found at the site of one of Canada's longest-running residential schools located in that province. The Indian Residential Schools Resolution Health Support Program has a hotline to help residential school survivors and their relatives suffering trauma invoked by the recall of past abuse. The number is one 925 44 one nine. 
Although survivors of this deeply unsettling history report varied experiences, the shared attitude toward the residential schools is one of mostly unanimous disgust and bone-chilling fear. Children lived in a daily nightmare. Staff and teachers physically and psychologically and sexually abused them. In addition to being neglected and starved, children were brutally disciplined if they were caught speaking their native language. Their clothing and belongings were removed and swapped for ordinary Western clothes, and their hair, which was a symbol of pride and one's connection to the earth for many indigenous cultures, was cut off. Everything about this new environment was meant to teach children that they were inferior. Some developed a deep loathing for their indigenousness. Others became even more determined to trace back their roots. But for many, the cultural dissonance this era created has continued to impact indigenous people today via intergenerational trauma. Residential school survivor testimony has long been filled with stories of students digging graves for their classmates, of unmarked burials on school grounds, and of children who disappeared in suspicious circumstances. Many of these stories were heard by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was formed in 2008 and collected testimonies from over 6,750 survivors. The TRC's 2015 final report made it quite clear that further recoveries of unmarked graves at the schools were inevitable. What is intergenerational trauma? A phenomenon in which the descendants of a person who has experienced a terrifying event show adverse emotional and behavioral reactions to the event that are similar to those of the initial person. These reactions vary by generation, but often include shame, increased anxiety and guilt, a heightened sense of vulnerability and helplessness, low self-esteem, depression, suicidality, substance abuse, dissociation, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, difficulty with relationships and attachment to others, difficulty in regulating aggression, and extreme reactivity to stress. Leona Wolf, who comes from the Muscoweekan Reserve, was five years old when she says she was taken from her home in 1960. School officials and police would often show up unannounced in indigenous communities and round up children, some as young as three. Parents could be jailed if they refused to hand their children over. When the kids arrived at their schools, their traditional long hair was shaved off. If they tried to speak their language, they were often punished. This was not a benign accident on the state of our past. This was a deliberate and decisive action chosen by white supremacist states to eradicate the native populations, as they continue to do so today, as tribal lands are put under threat and water and forest defenders who are extrajudicially murdered by state violence. Israel's new extremist government has been in power for a short time, and here's what they've done already. In the first six days, they killed four Palestinians, including three children, bombed the homes of two of the slain, destroyed at least four homes and a water tank in Masafir Yatta, broke into Al-Aqsa Mosque, among the holiest Muslim sites in the world, and violently invaded the Palestinian city of Jenin multiple times. Palestinians have been subjected to horrendous violence by every single Israeli government, but based on its first week in power, Israel's new extremist government may be the worst yet. The new government openly admits it doesn't believe that Palestinians have the right to exist on their own land. Its violence from last week alone is what this looks like in action. Colleen Rowley, a retired FBI special agent whose career included 14 years as legal counsel in the Minneapolis division where she worked with prosecutors and agents directly involved in the Leonard Peltier case, has written to Joe Biden making a case for Peltier's release. 
Retribution seems to have merged as the primary, if not sole, reason for continuing what looks from the outside to have become an emotion-driven FBI family vendetta, said Riley in the letter sent to the U.S. president in December and shared exclusively with The Guardian. The FBI's repeated opposition to the release of Leonard Peltier is driven by vindictiveness and misplaced loyalties, according to a former senior agent close to the case, who is the first agency insider to call for clemency for the indigenous rights activist who has been held in U.S. maximum security prisons for almost 50 years. Rowley added, the focus on my two cents leading to my joining the call for clemency is based on Peltier's inordinately long prison sentence and an even more compelling need for a simple mercy due to his advanced age and deteriorating health. Enough is enough. Leonard Peltier should now be allowed to go home. Peltier, an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Chippewa tribe and of Lakota and Dakota descent, was convicted of murdering two FBI agents during a shootout on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota in June 1975. Peltier was a leader of the American Indian Movement, an indigenous civil rights movement founded in Minneapolis that was infiltrated and repressed by the FBI. The 1977 murder trial and subsequent parole hearings were rife with irregularities and due process violations, including evidence that the FBI had coerced witnesses, withheld and falsified evidence. In lighter news, in Bakersfield, California, a video has circulated of two men setting themselves on fire after dumping an accelerant on a California Immigration Services building and setting it ablaze. In the video, caught by a ring surveillance camera, the two men proceed to dump the accelerant over the side of the building and parking lot in front. As one of the men continued to spread the fuel, the second squatted over a puddle of the accelerant and tried to light it on fire. The fire ignited violently, and the man sprinted away with his legs on fire. The second man panicked and fell down twice, and like his accomplice, sprinted away from the scene of the crime on fire. The man could be heard screaming as he ran into the night. And finally, a new hero has been etched into the record book of radical legends. Praise be to the almighty Mud Wizard and their sidekick Greta Thunberg who demonstrated their power against the legions of German riot police in defense of potentially 35,000 protesters protecting the coal beneath the long-occupied village of Lutzerath from being mined by one of the nation's largest energy companies, setting up barricades and treehouses, using rope systems to evade capture, and ensnaring offices in the deep, deep mud. In fact, this mysterious figure has already appeared in our storied radical past. During the legendary Battle of Zad at Notre Dame, when the police ambushed the wizard and a group of other heroes, the wizard casted spells of water at the police, proclaiming, I baptize you in the name of Zad. In the ensuing chaos, he made off with one of their batons. The same wizard was later seen delivering a sermon to the retreated liberal retirees, chanting, Disarm them! Disarm them! While holding the very baton he had taken from the Legion. Victory to the mud wizards. Defend the earth. For more information on this story, check out the article, The Defense of the Lutestrath, by Kramfink. And now for a quick roundup of other Crime Think headlines. On January 10th, they published January 8th, the Brazilian January 6th, tracking the rise of fascism from the United States to Brazil. On January 11th, they published January 2002, the Battle of York, anti-fascism then and now. And on January 19th, they published The Defense of the Lutzrath, a photo essay and poster documenting ecological destruction and resistance, as well as solidarity with the movement to stop Cop City and defend the Wilani Forest. 
Headlines from It's Going Down include January 6th, Inside the Wood Street Commons Fight Against Displacement. January 9th, Mutual Aid Groups Mobilize in the Face of Asheville Water Crisis. From the Final Straw. January 11th, Residents in Chicago, Illinois are reclaiming vacant properties. January 13th, Opponents of the Cop City Project in Atlanta call for a weekend of solidarity. January 16th, Savannah, Georgia residents rally at Brassfield and Gorey site to stop Cop City. January 16th, anti-fascists push back against Proud Boys in Redlands, California. January 18th, police murder Cop City protester in Atlanta Forest. And January 19th, rallies in solidarity with fight to stop Cop City spread after police murder Forest Defender. We are getting the cue that it's time for a musical break. When we return, we will talk about what we might be able to expect from a project such as the one Black Flower has proposed, and compare it to similar projects across the world, including Cooperation Tulsa in Oklahoma. But for now, here is I Want Something More, performed by Evan Greer. Hit it! down the words to a favorite song by her favorite band she hopes someone will read them and maybe they'll understand how it feels to care so much it hurts to fight so hard you shake to love so intensely that it scares you to build so much that something breaks she knows that she's not the only one Sometimes it sure feels that way In a little college town in Ohio So there's a song that she sings every day I want something That's better than this And I'm not sure exactly what it is But I think that we could build it If we try together If we all sing Five hundred miles away, down I seventy. There's a boy sitting in a room full of patches and PCP, and the kids all drink the same beer and they talk about anarchy. And he wonders if he's the only one Who remembers what that used to mean And the punk rock band plays on Long into the night These days the girls with the empty eyes Hardly even put up a fight And he watches as his friends give up And slowly start to die Sticking needles in their arms Because punk rock boys never cry He sings, I want something That's better than this And I'm not sure exactly what it is But I think that we could build it If we tried together And if we all sing do 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 do
that very same night, kids all across the earth felt lonely and confused, frightened and unsure. And we're trying to find one another through a system that keeps us apart to match the weapons that we hold in our fists with the passion that we carry in our hearts. And we know it's gonna take a long time And we know that we'll fuck up along the way But I've got a feeling that we're winning It's like you're more and more and more of us say I want something That's better than this And I'm not sure exactly what it is But I think that we could build it if we try together We all say Welcome back to Molotov Now. We will now examine the recent article published by the Harbor Rat Report entitled The Black Flower Collective and the Role of Worker-Owned Cooperatives in Our Future Struggles. When it comes to anarchy, the last thing you probably imagine is a business, and for good reason. For most of us, the only relationship we ever have with a business is as an exploited worker in the, in the employ of someone else who has more authority over your daily activities and makes more money, too. But if we want to come together in this current society and make something of note, much less a living, then it needs to be a business, especially if you want to rent or own property. These constraints make it so that a radical has very few options that could sit well with them ethically while still being able to navigate the world of leases and bank accounts in this late-stage capitalist system. One option open to them is what is known as a collective or a co-op, used somewhat interchangeably, a legal arrangement that allows for every member to be a co-owner in the operation. Anarchists have long been capable of attending meetings, organizing initiatives, and making decisions collectively or autonomously. So it comes naturally that this style of business involves a lot more work than your average sole proprietorship. But the trade-off is the lack of a hierarchical structure and maximum direct involvement in business decisions for members. Both are sweet rewards for any leftist. After all, who doesn't want to get rid of the bosses? But can this truly be revolutionary? Or is it just the sad justifications of a movement in decline? The last gasp before being fully assimilated into the settler colonial project? In this article, we will attempt to answer these questions by looking back at the origins of cooperative development and mutual aid in our species, as well as the history of radical spaces being jumping off points for further social movements and actions. We will take a sober look at the problems our community faces here in Aberdeen, Washington, which parallel the nation. Then we will end by doing something that anarchists and other radicals have been rightly chastised in the past for not doing enough of. We will offer some solutions. Solutions that get to the root of our problems and begin to provide a place from which we can really act to secure a better world. On the Origins of Cooperation and Mutual Aid 19th century Russian anarchist, socialist, revolutionary, historian, scientist, philosopher, and activist Peter Kropotkin wrote in his seminal book, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution, that, quote, In the animal world, we have seen that the vast majority of species live in societies, and that they find in association the best arms for the struggles of life. Understood, of course, 
in its wide Darwinian sense, not as a struggle for the sheer means of existence, but as a struggle against all natural conditions unfavorable to the species. Kropotkin argued that evolutionary species whose conditions of living included the least amount of individual suffering and the maximum amount of mutual aid and cooperation were time and time again the most numerous and prosperous of those he studied. He found that while certain predatory animals were solitary, most animals lived in social relationships, and while species may in fact compete for resources, within a single species, mutual aid was far more likely to serve the species than interspecies competition. The mutual aid protection which is obtained in this case, which are mainly the ability to grow old and learn more things that could benefit your species, was a result of this interspecies cooperation, and that unsociable species are doomed to decay. In regards to human development, Kropotkin pointed out that we found early humans living in clans and tribes at the very dawn of the Stone Age. We saw a wide series of social institutions developed already in the earlier stages, in the clan and the tribe. He argued that these customs and rituals were the result of this early form of mutual cooperation among early human ancestors. Next in the evolution of humanity came the village community, which brought a new, still wider circle of social customs, habits, and institutions, many of which are still alive among ourselves. It is of note that these early communities were developed under the principles of common ownership and defense of a given territory and common defense of it. And finally, in the last two chapters, Kropotkin argued that although the growth of the state, patterned on imperial Rome, had put a violent end to all medieval institutions for mutual support, this new aspect of civilization could not last. The state, based on loose aggregations of individuals and undertaking to be their only bond of union, did not answer its purpose. He wrote, The mutual aid tendency finally broke down its iron rules. It reappeared and reasserted itself in an infinity of associations which now tend to embrace all aspects of life and take possession of all that is required by man for life and for reproducing the waste occasioned by life. He remarked that in addition to his theory of mutual aid, there was a countercurrent to this tendency in that of the individual to obtain superior social or economic status, and that this tendency was a progressively developed one as well. This was not a feel-good story about humans all loving each other and being good to one another. It was a scientific exploration of what makes social species evolve certain social institutions and customs and what role mutual aid plays in the evolution of those animals, human beings being chief among them in his mind. Cooperation dates back as far as human beings have been organizing for mutual benefit. In ancient times, clans and tribes were organized as cooperative structures, allocating jobs and resources among each other, only trading with the external communities. In the middle of the 19th century, though, groups called mutual organizations first used these ideas in economic enterprises, first among tradespeople and later seen in cooperative stores, educational institutes, as well as financial and industrial enterprises. One common thread throughout these examples is the principles that an enterprise should be owned and controlled by the people it serves and share in any surpluses on the basis of each member's contributions rather than their ability to invest capital. A consistent driver of the global cooperative movement has been the concept of economic democracy. From Wikipedia, Economic democracy is a socio-economic philosophy that suggests an expansion of decision-making power from a small minority of corporate shareholders to a larger majority of public stakeholders. Although there are necessarily a variety of ways to organize for economic democracy based on local laws and customs, anarchists have been at the forefront of advocating locally organized cooperatives with multiple small co-ops being linked through a confederation of unions and communities. 
Marxists, who as socialists have likewise held and worked for the goal of democratizing productive and reproductive relationships, often placed a greater strategic emphasis on confronting the larger scales of human organization. Since their worldview says that the state is organized to steal from the working class, they spent most of the early 20th century stealing the idea of the state as a force to advance the agenda of the working poor. Marxists considered appropriating national and international scale institutions of capitalism to be the first pillar in creating conditions favorable to socialist development. Ever since industrial capitalism took root in the early 19th century, workers have struggled to create spaces where progressive politics demands could be made. Labor movements of that time demanded higher wages and better working conditions and hours, but workers also pushed beyond into demands for the abolition of the wage system entirely, common ownership of the means of production, and a social structure lacking the element of forced labor. They wanted people to be able to determine for themselves what they worked on and how much they worked on it, decoupling the need from work from access to the fundamental necessities of life. As written by the Symbiosis Research Collective in their piece Community Democracy and Mutual Aid, bargaining for a better share of economic surplus without transforming the ownership structure of the economy itself is not a strategy that can succeed in the long term. They continue, despite the temporary successes of mid-century social democracy, quote, successes that inadequately addressed matters of ecology, race, gender, and internationalism, the present neoliberal consensus has driven unionization to an all-time low. Unions have been curtailed by mass unemployment, the casualization of work, anti-labor laws in developed countries, and violent political repression in industrializing ones. The traditional industrial proletariat is no longer well-defined or large enough to be the single revolutionary agent, and perhaps never was. The research collective noted that one of the most promising worker institutions for achieving workplace democracy is the workers' cooperative. This is doubly productive since it not only secures people's ability to control their workplace, but it also helps to spread socialist ideas into the mainstream since worker ownership is such a central demand. Through engaging in cooperative workplace development, we can escape the chains of wage slavery and reduce our reliance on the capitalist framework and state interference in our workplaces. Collective workplaces are not without their own downsides, though, as illustrated by some of the larger cooperatives such as Mondragon, a network of cooperatives in Spain with over 74,000 worker owners and 12 billion euros in assets, which supports a wide range of industries and programs and has implemented some degree of internal democracy, yet it also demonstrates many of the limitations of even successful cooperatives. The research collective notes, quote, the Mondragon Cooperative's internal democracy has slowly eroded amid reforms meant to keep it competitive with capitalist firms. Between 1985 and 1991, the component worker-owned co-op of the Mondragon Network ceded most of their decision-making power to the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, a centralized holding company whose elected upper management was largely unaccountable to the worker shareholders, except in largely symbolic annual general assemblies. At the same time, Mondragon began hiring legions of wage workers, or non-owners, in its foreign subsidiaries. By 2014, only 40% of Mondragon's employees were worker owners who had voting power in the cooperative. Another obstacle to cooperative workplaces is the reliance on banking, since none of the capital present comes from investors. Banks are not usually friendly to the somewhat complex and experimental structures which can be found in the average cooperative. 
This results in most lenders asking for large amounts of collateral for loans or even some sort of influence in the decision-making of the organization. These limitations and hardships often result in most cooperatives failing before they even really start. The successful ones tend to be on the smaller side of things at a local level. Optimistically, though, once a company is able to get off the ground, studies have shown that cooperatives are typically more competitive in the market than traditional corporations of the same scale. The main weakness of cooperatives is financial. They can be hard to fund since most workers don't have the necessary capital to invest in a large initial contribution. Anarchist Spaces as Revolutionary Incubators One of the most common tactics for anarchists over the last hundred years has been the occupation. This can be anything from reclaiming a public space to a squat of a building or a piece of land. During large uprisings, we can see the development of so-called temporary autonomous zones, spaces where art, poetry, and surrealism are blended to display the anarchist ideal. These spaces often experiment with alternative decision-making methods and forms of community not seen outside the zone. Anarchists see squatting as a way to regain private or public spaces from the capitalist market. They serve to practice actual mutual aid and self-governance structures, as well as serving as wonderful direct actions that the wider community can engage with. Having such spaces allows us to experiment with new ways of relating to one another and creating social bonds based on radical solidarity and mutual aid. These artistic and often vivid examples of anarchist ideas in action are the best way we have to bring people into our movements long term. Physical spaces are not the only spaces worth seizing and defending. Anarchists have a long history of using newspapers and journals as mediums of releasing their revolutionary ideas and updating the populace on actions and thoughts relevant to contemporary anarchism. With the advent of the internet, anarchists were some of the first to use this new medium to do the same. It is often easier to make your own website because of issues with distribution faced by small autonomous collectives. One common method is using blogs, electronic libraries, and other portals to archive this content for interested parties to benefit from. Anarchists were also involved in developing various open-source software that we use today to keep ourselves safe from state surveillance. We must be our own media since the modern capitalist media landscape has no voice for our messages and will not cover our issues. There are many examples of anarchists being involved or directly leading projects experimenting with community since the 19th century. Countercultures, counter-economies, and regional anarchist movements have all sprung from and self-organized such communities based on anarchist ideals. These have included intentional communities founded by anarchists as social experiments and community-oriented projects, such as collective organizations and cooperative businesses. There are, there are also several instances of mass society, quote, anarchies, that have come about from explicitly anarchist revolutions, including the Maknovis China in Ukraine, revolutionary Catalonia in Spain, and the Xinmin Autonomous Region in Manchuria. Some of the most famous current projects include Exarchia, a community in central Athens, Greece, close to the historical building of the National Technical University of Athens. Exarchia is notorious for being Athens' historical core of radical political and intellectual activism. Exarchia is often considered the anarchist quarters of Athens, known for its radical democracy. From Wikipedia, Exarchia was created between 1870 and 1880 at the confines of the city and has played a significant role in the social and political life of Greece. It is there that the Athens Polytechnic Uprising of November 1973 took place. In December 2008, the murder of 15-year-old Alexandro Grigoropoulos by a policeman in Exarchia caused rioting throughout Greece. Many socialists, anarchists, and anti-fascists live in and around Exarchia, along with many artists and intellectuals. 
It is a veritable art district where the theatrical shows and concerts are held around the central square. Police stations and other symbols of authority and capitalism, such as banks, are often targets of far-leftist groups. One can find numerous anti-capitalist graffiti in Exarchia. A self-organized health structure providing medical service functions there as well. Another prominent space for revolutionary action has been the Zone to Defend, or Lazad, which refers to a militant occupation that is intended to physically blockade a development project in France. By occupying the land, activists aim to prevent the project from going ahead. The Zads are organized particularly in rural areas with an ecological or agricultural dimension, although the name has been used by occupations in urban areas as well. The most notable example is the Zad, which helped a broader campaign defeat a proposed airport in Notre Dame, north of Nantes. The Zad du Testet existed from 2011 until 2015 and prevented a dam from being constructed. Evicted Zads have, amongst other things, contested the construction of an electricity substation, a motorway, and a facility for the storage of nuclear waste. There have been Zads in the departments of nine different French regions. The occupation of Hambach Forest in Germany and the No-Tav movement in Italy have both been compared to Zads. The Zad della Colline was the first Swiss zone to defend. Barcelona is also home to numerous social centers and illegal squats that effectively form a shadow society mainly made up of the unemployed, immigrants, dropouts, anarchists, anti-authoritarians, and autonomists. Peter Geldelus estimates that there are around 200 squatted buildings and 40 social centers across the city with thousands of inhabitants, making it one of the largest squatter movements in the world. He notes that they pirate electricity, internet, and water, allowing them to live on less than one euro a day. He argues that these squats embrace an anarcho-communist and anti-work philosophy, often freely fixing up new houses, cleaning, patching roofs, installing windows, toilets, showers, lights, and kitchens. In the wake of austerity, the squats have provided a number of social services to the surrounding residents, including bicycle repair workshops, carpentry workshops, self-defense classes, free libraries, community gardens, free meals, computer labs, language classes, theater groups, free medical care, and legal support services. The squats help elderly residents avoid eviction and organize various protests throughout Barcelona. Notable squats include Canvise and Canmestu. Police have repeatedly tried to shut down the squatters' movement with waves of evictions and raids, but the movement is still going strong. Two more examples that may not consider themselves strictly anarchist, but are great examples of anarchistic practices and experiments in radical feminism and new ways of living, are the Zapatistas of rural Mexico and Rojava in northeast Syria. The rebel Zapatista autonomous municipalities are de facto autonomous territories controlled by the neo-Zapatista support bases in the Mexican state of Chiapas, founded following the Zapatista uprising which took place in 1994 and is part of the wider Chiapas conflict. Despite attempts at negotiation with the Mexican government, which resulted in the San Andres Accords of 1996, the region's autonomy remains unrecognized by it. On January 1st, 1994, thousands of EZLN members occupied towns and cities in Chiapas, burning down police stations, occupying government buildings, and skirmishing with the Mexican army. The EZLN demanded work, land, housing, food, healthcare, education, independence, freedom, democracy, justice, and peace in their communities. The Zapatistas seized over a million acres from large landowners during their revolution. The Zapatista army, or EZLN, does not hold any power in the autonomous municipalities. According to its constitution, no commander or member of the Clandestine Revolutionary Indigenous Committee may take positions of authority or government in these spaces. 
These places are found within the official municipalities, and several are even within the same municipality. As in the case of San Andreas, Lerenzar, and Ocosingo, the MAREZ are coordinated by autonomous Zapatista councils of good government, and their main objectives have been to promote education and health in their territories. They also fight for land rights, labor and trade, housing, and fuel supply issues, promoting arts, especially indigenous language and traditions, and administrating justice. The Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, the AANES, also known as Rojava, is a de facto autonomous region in northeastern Syria. It consists of self-governing sub-regions in the areas of Afrin, Jazira, Euphrates, Raqqa, Tabqa, Manbij, and Deir Ezzor. The region gained its de facto autonomy in 2012 in the context of the ongoing Rojava conflict and the wider Syrian civil war in which its official military force, the Syrian Democratic Forces, also known as the SDF, has taken part. The supporters of the region's administration state that it is an officially secular polity with direct democratic ambitions based on an anarchist, feminist, and libertarian socialist ideology, promoting decentralization, gender equality, environmental sustainability, social ecology, and pluralistic tolerance for religions, culture, and political diversity and that these values are mirrored in its constitution, society, and politics, stating it to be a model for a federalized Syria as a whole, rather than outright independence. The region's administration has also been accused by some partisan and nonpartisan sources of authoritarianism, support of the Syrian government, curtification, and displacement. However, despite this, the autonomous administration of North and East Syria has been the most democratic system in Syria, with direct open elections, universal equality, respecting human rights within the region, as well as defense of minority and religious rights within Syria. The region has implemented a new social justice approach which emphasizes rehabilitation, empowerment, and social care over retribution. The death penalty was abolished. Prisons house mostly people charged with terrorist activity related to ISIL and other extremist groups, and are a large strain on the region's economy. The autonomous region is ruled by a coalition which bases its policy ambitions to a large extent on the democratic libertarian socialist ideology of democratic confederalism, and have been described as pursuing a model of economy that blends cooperative and market enterprise through a system of local councils in minority, cultural, and religious representation. One major influence on the politics of this region's administration has been the anarchist and author Murray Bookchin's works. Rojava has by far the highest average salaries and standard of living throughout Syria, with salaries being twice as large as the regime-controlled Syria. Following the collapse of the Syrian pound, Java doubled salaries to maintain inflation and allow for good wages. Independent organizations providing health care in the region include the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Syrian American Medical Society, the Free Burma Rangers, and Doctors Without Borders. The problems we face today. Since the inception of our local food not bombs and the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network, we have noticed one glaring need, and that is a place for people to camp safely that can be used as a stable base from which to secure the rest of their needs. It is very hard to provide or receive assistance when you don't have a tent and are moved from place to place every single day by the police. That is the most unstable form of houselessness. Another level of stability is provided by a tent, assuming you can keep it from being destroyed by the weather or the city. But this form of shelter is not very stable still, for that you need a consistent place to keep your tent, a campsite. 
This is what the campers along the Chehalis River had for so long, and what was stolen from them when they were evicted in 2019. When you have a campsite you can maintain, that allows you to know where you are going to sleep each night. It allows you to have one place to keep all of your belongings. It allows you some measure of privacy and safety from the streets and weather. Another advantage to having a consistent campsite is that you can start to build structures that provide even more privacy and safety. People at the Old River Camp had constructed many shelters out of pallets and other found materials, which could be readily heated in winter and were easily as large as some tiny homes that now trend across the country. As political activists, we found that people who we were engaging with at our events were often living on the streets, and that alone made it difficult for them to engage with the political nature of our literature or ideas. While interested and supportive, their focus was always on meeting their direct needs, such as getting food, water, and clothing. Unsurprisingly, it is hard to concern oneself with reading about revolutionary politics when you aren't sure where your next meal will come from, or even where you will sleep that night. So this was a clear impediment to organizing in our community. The fact that its needs were so great and so immediate that it almost took all we could do to help people meet them. That has been the last two years of action in this town. Trying to secure enough stability for our community so that people can start to think about why they suffer these material conditions and then to start thinking and organizing to change them. We cannot expect people to be able to fully engage in political direct actions when they are in such vulnerable positions. It is our duty to show solidarity with those who need it and to help those who are in positions of vulnerability to rise out of those conditions and by this show them that our ideals are worth their salt. So one thing our community needs is a place for people to camp long term and have the ability to live in a stable environment and build their own spaces to their liking. This would provide people with the ability to heat themselves during the winter, reduce the burden on the currently inadequate shelter options. It would also allow for garbage and sanitation services to be implemented, which would reduce pollution and keep people safer and healthier. This would give people the ability to take better care of their spaces and maintain them free of trash and unwanted accumulation. With this level of stability, it is feasible to start going out and connecting with service providers, looking for employment, addiction services, health care, and whatever other things a person may need to do in their life. A village of tiny homes with central corridors for green spaces, gardens, and communal areas would provide much more privacy from unwanted spectators, police, and the city. It would provide a healthy and safe place for people to start to rebuild their lives and get back into permanent housing, or stay on site permanently and build a life there. Ultimately, what the unhoused need is housing. That's what we need. Our radical community of activists and volunteers has also needed its own space since day one. We have set up weekly meals in parks or parking lots for two years now. We could do immensely more for our community if we had a base of operations from which to cook and serve meals. If we did have our own space, we could also think about offering all sorts of new services that we can't offer now. We could host meetings and events, workshops, skill shares, a place to hold union meetings to start unionizing local sectors. In addition to the expansion of our harm reduction services, we could offer new things like legal assistance and health clinics, both overwhelming needs in the community. Plus, we could store a wide range of library items such as books, tools, and seeds that people would be able to borrow for their own projects and return them to the community stock when done. We could eventually build this tool library into a real makerspace with 3D printing and light manufacturing equipment. All this so that people could truly start to make their own things at scale and begin to think about profitable business ventures to help them make more money without having to become an employee at some shitty job that will exploit their labor. We want to have as many people as possible freed from the oppressive cycle of work and rent. To do this, we cannot simply get people back on track. 
To do this would be to completely miss the point. Our goal needs to be total emancipation for all. We are making these radical spaces as jumping-off points, organizing centers in which to build a community willing and able to go far beyond simple social services and revolutionize our way of living and relating. The model can provide the economic stability that we all need to be able to volunteer or labor in the movement struggle. As mentioned before, assimilation into the mold is not the goal here. We are not trying to get back into the grind. We are trying to upend the workflow completely. But how can we organize when we have no place to do so? We have been steadily stripped of these places of communal gathering since the elites in society realized the dangers these types of spaces presented to their rule. It seems unlikely that any social movement will succeed unless it is able to take and hold space at a scale not often seen. Temporary autonomous zones have sprung up at many recent protest sites, usually started by radicals and anarchists looking to provide people with a space to imagine and explore new modes of living. The ideas and trials undertaken in these spaces can ripple out into the larger social structure and have lessons to teach and political ramifications that extend long past any eviction. Just as these spontaneous autonomous zones can be springboards for the next level of development, so too can smaller anarchist spaces be used to inspire and organize such autonomous zones in the first place. Our town is not yet ready for this level of political disruption. Although it may seem cut off and isolated at times, the state is ready and able to mobilize law enforcement from a wide area and even call on the help of the feds to crush any rebellion not strong enough to withstand it. If you don't believe me, just take a look at the grounds for the National Guard by LeMay's Garbage Services, or think about how short of a drive it is from Joint Base Lewis-McChord. We need spaces in which to learn how we might curtail and resist these efforts. We need to gather to consider and reflect and ruminate on our goals and our needs and our strategy in order to achieve them. The police can repress one uprising, even if it is large. What they are not prepared for is many small uprisings all over the place. It is no longer enough to travel to major urban centers for mass demonstrations. We need to be taking the lessons learned and applying it back home in our small towns and outlying cities. Radicals everywhere should aim to inspire these sorts of actions where they are. We need to be ready for the next wave of mass uprising and be able to transform people's righteous rage into productive forces for overturning the tables on our rulers and securing a good living for everyone. The solutions we need today. All right, so we have a representative from the Black Flower Collective here with us in studio today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell our listeners your pronouns, and then tell us what do you think the needs are facing Aberdeen at this moment? Hey, you can call me Daisy, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm here today on behalf of the Black Flower Collective, and I'm excited to be able to talk about our project here with y'all today. It's clear that what we need is space, a home base, a place from which to grow a strong and resilient community able to take revolutionary action and withstand state repression. The average listener might think of renting a spot in town, and for some, that model may be successful. But with the trajectory our community has taken locally, we need to actually own property. We have so much of an uphill battle to fight against the local owning class and political far right that we cannot be subjected to the whims of a landlord to establish the kind of stability we are looking to bring. So what you need is your own land. What's the plan for that? To buy and maintain... Oh, hey kitty. What's your name? Wait. Fuck, how did he get in here? Did you lock the door like we said? Oh, it's okay. He's just a cute little kitty. You know, get, we need to leave now. Go on, get out of here. Get shoot. What? No, he's fine. He's fine. Here you all all go. Get on. Get. Lock that door. 
<sighs> All right, that was close. There's only four of them this time. I don't understand. Look, those aren't normal cats. Those are Sabo cats, and they are trouble. Are you sure they're all gone? Yeah, I checked everywhere. Okay, sorry about that, everyone. Let's get back to where we were. Wait, what the fuck was that? Don't worry about it. So we were talking about the collective's plans for buying your own land. Uh, okay. Well, our goal to buy and maintain a piece of property will require money, though, and that's why we have started this LLC. Even though the model of what we are trying to do really lends itself more to being in the nonprofit sector, we felt that the legal structure of a cooperative member-owned LLC would allow us more resilience in the long term, as we wouldn't be subject to the desires of our funders. We would rather let people support us through traditional commercial activity and reinvest that money into the land projects. This means that we, as radicals, will be interfacing with capitalism. But we all do this anyway when we go to work for an employer and pay for housing to a bank or landlord. We think that the goal is important enough that taking on this additional burden of operating an anti-capitalist business in a capitalist society is worth it. How can you make this something that will not fail and leave people even worse off than they were before? So the first thing we need to do is develop some sources of revenue. We're leaning on what the collective knows to start us off. That is, we will be using the permaculture design concepts that will guide the development of our land someday and offering these design services to customers. We can design your apartment balcony or your homestead, your eco-village, or your backyard garden. We're also starting a bookkeeping service that will eventually fold into our business incubator project. This way we can have some revenue coming in to help us save the money for the property, alongside doing crowdfunding efforts and local fundraising events. Once we obtain the land, the potential revenue streams almost become too many to name. From the sale of timber to rentable event space, we'll be leaving no stone unturned in our efforts to make sure we can sustain this project indefinitely. So my next question then is, what do you do with the property once you have it? So our plan is twofold. The property would be divided into two separate sections. The public-facing section would be dedicated to the social center. The rest of the property to the rear would be the eco-village where residents would live. The social center side will be where we centralize community resources, and the self-governed eco-village would have immediate access to those shared community resources. The social center would serve as a business incubator for various community initiatives and residents' personal small businesses. It would also be the central hub for preparing and serving food with an internet cafeteria and community kitchen. Space will be dedicated to a mutual aid depot for storage and distribution of supplies used in ongoing mutual aid work on and off-site. Spaces would also be set aside for future projects such as legal and medical clinics, a union meeting hall, and many mixed-use spaces for workshops, art and maker spaces, as well as spaces for rent to the public. Tell us more about these plans you have for a media center. One of the projects Black Flower will be undertaking is the building of a media center for the public to be able to make their own video and audio media, and will have resources available for help with distribution. We want the social center to cater to the wider community beyond just the eco-village, drawing people from the region to a unique space where they can interact and participate in new models of economics, design, community, and education. So you mentioned permaculture design. How will that fit into the plan for this property? As part of the eco-village campus, 
We will offer permaculture design courses for people to learn how to design their own properties, as well as offering professional permaculture design services to regional property owners who want to hire someone to design their property for them. It really seems like you want to do a lot of educational projects on the property, what with workshops and design courses. Yeah, so the Eco Village will not only serve as a practical solution to lack of housing, but also a learning center where permaculture design concepts are experimented with and taught. Education is a large part of the goal of this project. Beyond design courses, we want to have music, history, science, technology, engineering, and math political education, and more as part of a holistic unschooling program. People can generate their own curriculum and pace their own learning. So what are the long-term future goals for the project? If everything goes well over the next, say, five years, what then? In the future, we want to develop the property into a true educational facility, catering to alternative educational experiences for those not interested in traditional educational styles. The desire of this collective is to inspire people to consider the alternative ways we might live and work and relate to one another, so we will encourage attempts by the community to put their novel ideas into action. With all of the nearby activity, the possibilities for on-site employment abound for residents of the eco-village, so people in need of employment will have a ready-made place to work and make money while contributing to a revolutionary movement. Well, thanks for joining us in studio today and talking about the cool projects that you guys have planned. Uh, We're sorry about the cat thing and hope that that didn't uh, throw you off too much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure being here, and I'm still a little confused about the cat thing. No, it's fine. Just don't worry about it. As mentioned, the eco-village will govern itself, being an independent entity to Black Flower. The likely model for this entity is called a community land trust, In the short term, it is the institution best suited for creating an anti-gentrification bulwark of socialized housing run by the community. A community land trust is a nonprofit legal entity entrusted with property management in the community's interest, ensuring affordable housing, preserving environmental assets, and driving cooperative neighborhood development. The leadership of this nonprofit is usually the residents of the land over which the community land trust has authority. This way, decisions around the community can be made by the community itself, protecting it from the whims of developers and gentrifiers. With a community land trust, one could raise funds to purchase property and build low-income housing or sliding-scale housing options, securing them for residents long-term outside the volatile housing market. The CLT could run on a time-based economy, where individuals who are members in the CLT would commit a certain number of labor hours to projects of restoration and maintenance. This body would benefit from the local social center's vast tool library and the mutual aid depot's building materials to build all manner of sustainable buildings. In conjunction with the plan unit development model of residential development, a community land trust would create mixed-use housing able to fit the needs of the community and would designate a certain percentage of land to communal green spaces and gardens. This would act to maximize residential participation in community and create opportunities for experiments in alternative modes of life. As noted by the Symbiosis Research Collective, understandably, many individuals and families have no desire to live in communes, and an emphasis on expanding the cooperative sphere of daily life should not be a barrier to entry. However, many other people feel constrained by the alienation and limitations of current housing options. Revitalizing community and pushing back against our social atomization is an important aspect of all projects in this organizing model, rethinking living arrangements most of all. 
They explain housing arrangements and their proposed system through a lens of two axes, duration of anticipated residence and degree of communality. For the first axis, housing opportunities would consist of a spectrum of options including emergency temporary shelter for those currently unhoused, transitional housing for domestic abuse survivors and people seeking to transition away from temporary shelters, short-term housing for up to one year for college students or visitors, semi-permanent housing for one to five years, and finally, permanent housing. The second axis ranges from individual apartments to single-family homes with a variety of communal living situations based on the needs of the residents. Their plans are for manifesting at a large municipal-level scale, but many of the ideas are applicable to smaller-scale residential developments. The goal is to expand and encourage common management of the home, shared rituals of belonging, and collective child-rearing, all features of the current intentional community housing movement. This allows for a much more diverse population living in much denser conditions, but able to interact and relate to their communities easier and more effectively than what our system of isolation currently allows. By working, eating, and living close to home, we can more easily come together to affect the changes that we want to see. A community land trust used in this way would foster community while laying the groundwork for the liberated society. The Eco Village campus will be built by and for its residents using cheap natural building techniques in order to provide each person their own warm, safe, dignifying living space, transitional or permanent. This housing would serve as a stable base from which to build a community based on resilience, skill sharing, learning, and love. It's time for us to go away for a quick break. When we return, we will be giving a quick recap of what we have discussed today and give some final analysis about this Black Flower project. But until then, Presenting our brothers from across the pond, Coxbar, performing We're Coming Back. Hit it! Coming back, we're coming back, we're coming back. 
Welcome back to Molotov Now. It's now time for us to analyze the article we've just examined and talk about the Black Flower Collective LLC. Well, so that seems like a really cool project to get involved in. I'm glad we made the choice to do so early on. Yeah, by choosing to get in on the ground floor, we can assist them in raising funds as our platform grows to get this project rolling even faster. Maybe we should explain the relationship between Sabo Media and the Black Flower Collective for our listeners. That's a great idea. People are probably wondering what exactly is going on there. So, we at Sabo Media are fully invested in the idea of this project. So in order to signal boost for their plans and fundraisers, we have lended some hands in helping them organize with our media operations, promoting them, getting the word out about their projects, making graphics for them, etc. We know the organizers from our work on the streets doing mutual aid in town. When they approached us about getting involved, it was just as we were starting to think about starting Sabo Media. So we figured our place could be the media arm of the operation, so to speak. Yeah, they didn't really have anyone with that knowledge base, so we stepped in to help. And obviously, we were drawn in by the project and how cool it sounded. And now we're working together towards opening this media center with them so that we can both use it for our media projects and to share it with the community so others can start media projects of their own. Right. I'm so excited to actually start building the thing. Everybody needs to be able to tell their stories and have them heard by media collectives such as ourselves. Well, they got to buy land first. No timeline on that, unfortunately. So to clarify for our listeners real quick, we are not the Black Flower Collective, right? No, we're going to remain our own separate thing. We figured that with the content we were producing, that would be best. We don't want them to have any editorial control over what we produce at Sabo Media. Okay, so now that has been covered, let's get into it. What do you think about the project? What are your biggest concerns and critiques? Do you think it can really be successful in the long run? I would say some of my biggest concerns for the project are the local right-wing reactionaries. I don't think that they will want this sort of thing in, quote, their town, and will push back on it as much as possible. I don't foresee any physical harassment necessarily, but them trying to stop things at the county level may be their move, since they seem to have people in those positions. As for critiques, I guess I should think of one, huh? Give me a second. I don't know, Sprout. I think there's a real possibility of physical harassment, to be honest. With the political climate in this county, I think that they should be preparing for that eventuality, just to be safe. Let's hope not. Okay, so one critique I could make is about the use of the word permaculture. Not that I don't respect the hard work that people who use that term do, and the usefulness of those practices. It's just become kind of a bit infested with the sort of white nationalists that find themselves farming. It did a great job of putting forth some ethical considerations for designing systems, but when it comes to politics, there really aren't any, and it's starting to show. It has become a subculture, and I'm not sure if it's politically aware enough to realize it's being infiltrated by the far right and do something about it. Haven't seen enough written on this subject, and I hope to write on it in the future a bit. Oh, really? So it's that bad, huh? I didn't even know it was a haven for white nationalists. I don't know how pervasive it really is. I'm not sure I would call it a haven exactly, but it doesn't have the explicit politics necessary to safeguard it against that sort of trend. I just hope it's something they are aware of and guarding against. They have some interesting writings on their website about something they call aniculture. It seems like they are. But we will see what they come up with and keep everyone updated. Experimenting with a new sort of methodology for permaculture? Let me read their website real quick. Okay, so it says here, Our social, political, climate, and environmental and economic systems are not broken, but they are poorly designed. They achieve the goal they were designed for, short-term profit. But because the design was ad hoc, haphazard, and inequitable, they leave many in poverty while promoting a very small number to unimaginable wealth. 
It is beyond obvious to merely state that these systems are not sustainable, but the next step is realizing that they can be redesigned by us. As humans, we can design much better systems when we introduce ethical considerations into the core of the design process. This gives us permaculture, or ethical design. But again, this seems to fall short as we see a variety of examples of fascist creep into the permaculture community, and the community itself seems ill-prepared to counter this trend. Okay, so they are well aware of the problem. Then that's good. What else does it say? Okay, so continuing from their site. As a possible hope to resist this, we would like to introduce a new concept, aniculture, or anarcho-permaculture. It is our desire to develop this theoretical approach by experimentation and trials, taking the uniquely anti-authoritarian ethics of the anarchist intellectual tradition and combining it with the already established library of permaculture techniques. We hope to fortify the future of these design movements against fascist infiltration. Nice. I'm glad they're addressing this front and center. I should have read through their website more thoroughly. It goes on. Yeah, you should really read their bit about their inspirations. They pull their ideas from some really interesting projects, such as Firestorm Co-op. Anyway, what else does it say? Design allows us to participate in the creation of all sorts. When applied to culture, it is the ability to create one's own culture as you see fit. There is much to learn from the past, but we must not be subservient to it. We can change our ways when it suits us. Permaculture gives a good path forward for attacking any problem head-on. It is direct action. It is revolutionary. By designing a permanent culture built on anarchist ideals, we can promise a future to the next seven generations and begin to heal the wounds caused by such poorly designed systems as we have today. I love the nod to the seven generations concept of the Iroquois. I'm not familiar with that. It's a concept that urges the current generation of humans to live and work for the benefit of the seventh generation into the future. It is believed to have originated with the Iroquois, with the great law of the Iroquois which holds that it is appropriate to think seven generations ahead and decide whether decisions they make today would benefit their descendants. Oh, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense as a way to ensure sustainable practices. People in our culture can be so short-sighted when it comes to profit over the planet. They finish with this piece. We believe that any ethically designed system must reject authoritarianism and embrace universal emancipation, both for human and non-human systems. There is no compatibility between the ethics of permaculture and the far-right worldview. For this reason and more, we feel it necessary to promote this distinct theory as a guide for those wanting to practice and learn design concepts that we can use to liberate our planet, redesign our world, and create a new world in the shell of the old. Well, I'm glad I looked that up. That is reassuring to know that they are addressing the issue and working towards a new way of doing things. Yeah, this anaculture thing sounds really cool. I hope it can offer the permaculture community the political awareness it seems to need to stop the fascist creep. They always seem to find ways to co-op sub and countercultures to spread their garbage ideology. Feels like the punks were the only ones who have successfully pushed them out of their scene. Yeah, anaculture. That's a good one. I kind of wish I had come up with it, if we were being honest. So we were talking about my critiques, and that pretty well put those to bed. But you had asked how I thought it could last long term, or whether I thought it would be able to. And obviously there's no way to know for sure, but I think that there's a really good chance. The people behind it are smart and motivated, they're active in the community, and radical mutual aid work. I trust them to put together something that works to meet the needs of the community. I think as the article mentioned, funding is one of their biggest hurdles. So hopefully people out there listening who have the money consider going and helping them out with some donations. That would be an amazing group to give your money to. They will be doing amazing things here on the harbor. They're already out there taking jobs with the bookkeeping and design services. Really? That's awesome. So what are some of your concerns or critiques of the project? Let's get into your thoughts now. Do you think it can really last? 
Well, the most obvious obstacles are going to be the funding for the property and the community engagement, whether that's supportive or reactionary engagement. The price of land is going up every day and is often bought up the moment it hits the market, making it harder to secure deals without the cash on hand. Not to mention, because of the nature of these projects and the root of reactionary politics are in a clash, the reputation and legitimacy of Black Flower and the community it supports will constantly be contested by the same reactionaries that have driven the conditions that necessitates the need for this space in the first place. So you're saying that they have an uphill battle against the local far-right reactionaries, politically speaking. I agree. I think they are cognizant of that, though. What do you think as far as the longevity of the proposed project? The core of this is that this is a struggle that will go on long after the oppressions of capitalism have been resolved. Rather than see defeat in a theoretical future demise, I would think it a better question to ask not how long this space will last, but how it will affect our community in the time that it does last. This space may be dissolved when the class struggle begins to put stress on the chains that bind it, or it might evolve into something unprotected entirely. Nothing lasts forever, so we cannot focus on what Black Flower will be, but on what Black Flower will do and how we can support that. So, earlier you mentioned their inspirations. Let's dive into that a bit. I pulled this up from their website again. It says, Inspirations. We've been inspired by so many groups during the development and planning of this project. Below you will find some of the projects and groups that have shown us the possibility of doing things differently, our own way, and have been successful at doing so. Ah, first they have Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network. It's a grassroots groups of community members in so-called Grace Harbor County engaged in political direct action. We are not a nonprofit, 501c3, a business, or a club. We are normal people who are trying to organize the vast potential of our community to build the world we want to see without asking for permission. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is what brought the founders of Black Flower together and what put us on the streets to meet so many good-hearted people in our community. It's the reason there is a Black Flower Collective in the first place. They continue to do excellent work, and we are happy to be able to partner with them so they can grow their project in our physical space. Oh, Sabo Media! an open collective of radical media makers. We're an anarchist media collective looking to provide an outlet for radical analysis, organization, and education throughout various media projects. It says Sabo Media was birthed from Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network and is a vital member org. They have essentially taken over the media wing of the network. Oh, Firestorm Co-op. We are a collectively owned radical bookstore and community event space in Asheville, North Carolina. Since 2008, we've supported grassroots movements in Southern Appalachia while developing a workplace on the basis of cooperation, empowerment, and equity. Firestorm would probably be the most influential in the formation of our own business plans, it says. We looked to them early on for guidance on forming and running a cooperative worker-owned company. Oh, that's cool. They were generous enough to share their insights and their operating agreement, which has formed the backbone of our own operating agreement at Blackflower LLC. They are a shining example of what we would like to model in our space and give us constant inspirations for our own projects. Here's Cooperation Tulsa. Cooperation Tulsa it is an emerging cooperative network in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are part of the National Symbiosis Federation of Organizations in North America. Our work primarily focuses on food sovereignty, decommodifying land, and building municipal democracy. We are a horizontal organization dedicated to indigenous and cooperative values. Currently, we are working on a network of community gardens and urban farming in Tulsa. It says, We have taken great comfort in watching this awesome group of folks build this project from the ground up. Since their project is so very similar to ours, we love to see them succeeding and gaining attention. We hope to connect with them and the larger symbiosis federation they are a part of in the future and begin a dialogue about sharing experiences and skills. 
And then there's Bunkhouse Acres, a 20-acre black-led farm and bread school in Middle Satsap Valley, a portion of whose CSA food shares are donated to local BIPOC families in need, and leftover unclaimed produce gets used by Food Not Bombs. The Seattle Community Fridges are a part of a wider regional solidarity network Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network sends prepared food and produce to as often as possible. And, of course, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, hell yeah, says... We have a deep respect for these folks. They do amazingly radical and liberatory relief work at a large scale. They are directly responsible for inspiring this group and have actively helped us in procuring certain donations as a registered 501c3 organization with some incredible connections. So in conclusion, the community being built here in Grace Harbor of radicals and activists on the harbor willing to take action to bring about the world they want to see need their own space. Blackfire Collective has been formed from grassroots discussion by that community and from members of the community in order to meet that need. They have many, many creative and ambitious goals for the project, some of which they have started already and some of which are still being researched and developed by the collective. A major goal of the collective is educational in nature. They express a desire to provide an alternative learning style for people who are not able to learn from traditional schooling methods. It will be interesting to see how much of the youth will want to be involved in this project. A major belief of us here at Sabo Media is the wisdom of the youth. We should listen to them more often if we want to succeed in our radical visions of the future. It is their future, after all. They even hope to develop the property into a real campus with on-site residences and revolutionary coursework. This is a beneficial project of liberation. We must be ready to educate people about the causes of their material woes and the possibility of solving them ourselves. The collective is also very focused on the ecological, wanting to design the property themselves along the perma or anacultural practices and techniques they have learned and will be experimenting with. They are aware of the fascist creep into these spaces and seem well poised to prevent their space from falling prey to such predation. The eco-village they are designing will be packed with communal green spaces and gardens that will bring people living there, outside and into the fields. Being together while accomplishing the tasks of life will form a true bond between neighbors. This trust can be leveraged for all sorts of radical direct actions through the use of affinity groups. After everything we've learned today, any way you look at it, this is a radical project. Even though it operates as an official LLC and then we'll have to make money to survive like any other business. As we're funding, the collective is busy getting parts of its business plans up and running and to start generating revenue streams. On top of this, they are starting to do things like planning benefit shows and art shows to raise funds for the land needed. However, this is a crowdsourced project. It cannot come to fruition without the support from the community. Not just the local communities of so-called Grace Harbor, but from the community of radicals who wish to see this project fulfilled, no matter where their location. So please, if you can. Blackflower is taking donations at linktree slash LLC. If you have the ability to contribute to this much-needed project, please do so. We wish them the best in their endeavors and offer them our most sincerest solidarity in their efforts. We will be there with them, side by side, the whole way, and we can't wait to see what sort of mischief we can make together. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you'd like to come on the show, please email us at 
sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Maltop Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. That's S-A-B-O-T underscore media at riseup.net. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Queer Satanic, who come with good news and bad news for our devilish comrades. The good news, the four former members of the Satanic Temple won their legal defense after nearly three years of the Satanic Temple suing them in federal court for online criticism. Congratulations on their victory. The bad news, the Temple has appealed their loss to keep extending this case and its expenses for the defendants, which in December exceeded over $115,000. Any donations to their legal defense funds would be appreciated. Their website is queersatanic.com. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, visit their website at blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Thank you to Evan Greer for letting us use their song, I Want Something, and thank you to TKO Records for letting us use the song, We're Coming Back, by Coxbar on the program today. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social, that's K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A, and follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Don't forget to go to bit.ly slash Lakota Law ICWA and sign the petition by the Lakota People's Law Project telling Joe Biden and attorneys for the Department of Justice to do everything in their power to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act and defend Secretary Deb Haaland. It is the heart of winter here and we are still without shelter in Aberdeen. Without intervention, more and more of our homeless population are becoming casualties of the state. Jehalis River Mutual Aid Network is still running a winter fundraiser to buy warm weather gear for the homeless. To donate, visit bit.ly backslash crman donations. Don't forget, the Communique is looking for artists and author submissions. Please write to salo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry before March 6th for our Spring Equinox edition. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, cash app, cash tag Katie Hussey, to help prevent them from facing eviction or to support them should they do so. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally... IGD recently featured an interview with us on their podcast, This Is America, discussing all the work that radicals are doing on the harbor. For more info and to listen, go to itsgoingdown.org. Remember to check out Sabo Media's new website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects, such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Saboteurs, Ask Annie, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay and neuter your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. Yeah.